Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, bringing you events from the Heyman Center archive. This podcast is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on February 19th, 2020, honoring the work of Professor Marius Kozak of Columbia University's Department of Music. Professor Kozak studies the relationship between music, cognition, and the body. His 2019 book, Enacting Musical Time, The Bodily Experience of New Music, argues that musical time is partly a product of the listener's bodily engagement with music. Instead of assuming that time is a stable entity within which a listener's experience of music unfolds, Professor Kozak explains how the listening body and a piece of music work together to create time. The first talk, by Professor Kozak himself, discusses the book's argument in more detail. We'll also hear a panel response from Professor George E. Lewis, and an excerpt of one of the musical compositions Professor Kozak discusses in his book. I'll just kind of briefly tell you about the book and maybe about uh, its origins from my perspective. So, imagine time. The very first thing I ask of my readers is perhaps the hardest. For how do you imagine something that you can only know indirectly through its effects on other things? How do you capture the essence of something that to this day divides philosophers, scientists, theologians, artists, engineers, writers, artisans, economists, and basically anybody whose work explicitly concerns time and its experience. Still, we try. And in our imaginings, we come up with more and more creative ways of envisioning that which you can only feel. The question of time is obviously important in music, an eminently temporal art form, though it has only recently begun to receive sustained scholarly attention. It becomes even more crucial in the context of contemporary music, since composers in the 20th and the 21st centuries, such as Stravinsky, Stockhausen, Carter, Boulez, Reich, or Grise, have consistently questioned temporal orthodoxies and created new paths through time. The paleogenesis of my own path stretches back to my college years, long before anything resembling what I do today was even remotely on my radar. I want to share with you the experience, still vivid in my mind, that ultimately led me to think seriously about time in music. Back in those days, I was a violinist, and on one occasion, the orchestra that I played with performed a series of concerts featuring Goretzky's famous (coughs) Symphony of Sorrowful Songs. I distinctly remember the first performance. For those of you who don't know it, this is a monumental work, lasting about an hour, that features very slow, steady pulses stretching over very long periods with minimal harmonic changes. This combination of musical elements and the repetitive motion of pushing and pulling the bow across the strings resulted in something that to this day baffles me. It wasn't a trance because I was intensely aware of every moment. It wasn't as if time stopped either because it simply felt like it passed. But it passed in a way that defied every other musical experience that I've ever had. I could literally feel it. I could feel how I was giving it shape, 
stretching and pulling it every which way through my active music making. Sure enough, the experience was singular. Even though we played the piece several more times, I couldn't recover it then, or in any musical experience since. In part, this served as the inspiration for the book, to probe the nature of time and its relation to a moving body in a musical context. Paths. Lines that crisscross the terrain of our lives. Time seems to be naturally drawn to them, figuratively and literally. We draw timelines, arrows, loops, and spirals, shapes that form a repository of Western temporal knowledge. But sometimes lines aren't enough, and new music seems to revel in disclosing their limits. Lines and paths no longer provide enough multiformity to account for the richness of experience. Perhaps it's fortunate that time can't be known directly, because its ephemeral nature grants our imagination the freedom to consider other forms that might aid us in processing the enveloping flux. Imagine time differently, then. A sphere, or a cube, or even a tesseract. Imagine time running diagonally, or folding back upon itself, or sideways, or from inside out. Imagine time crackling, wheezing, rustling, whooshing, buzzing. Imagine it silent. Or smelling of freshly cut grass. Or breathing slowly, heavily. What if it came towards you and you could touch it, feel its warmth? What if it did all of this at once? Now these may seem to you like whimsical metaphors, evocative poetic images that do little to augment our understanding of time itself. But the argument I make in the book is that these are all expressions of the same temporalizing act of the body engaged with its environment. Rather than replacing old metaphors with new ones, in each chapter I question notions of time enshrined in music theoretical concepts by delving into the pre-discursive space in which the listening experience touches the sonic world. I offer, in the, in the place of these metaphors, new ways of thinking of time's significance in our encounters with music. What interests me in particular is how and why time shows up as an aspect of our listening experience, and how music draws on this experience to create opportunities for the emergence of new meanings. To give you a brief overview, in this book I develop an embodied theory of musical time by combining findings from my own motion capture experiments with analysis of contemporary music. The observable spectrum of behaviors that accompany music is varied, from deliberate inactivity, to the simple action of tapping your foot in synchrony with the beat, to full-blown choreographies that involve the whole body. Through this behavior, listeners express what I call their kinesthetic knowledge about how music unfolds. This knowledge concerns what it feels like to move to music, and it is essentially affective. It involves having an embodied experience of one's relation to an event happening in the external world. My central thesis is that musical time emerges from kinesthetic knowledge, created by the moving bodies of participants engaged in musical activities. Throughout the book, I draw on evidence from music theory, phenomenology, cognitive science, and social anthropology to explore some ways in which this time is manifested, how it might show up in experience, and how we can harness it in music analysis. In particular, I examine different aspects of musical structure through the lens of embodied cognition. These aspects include tiny moment-to-moment -moment fluctuations in sound, 
little slippages and momentary wobbles that knock temporality out of balance and perturb it just enough for us to take notice. But they also include macro-scale phenomena, such as the effect of repetition on the form of an entire musical work. Exploring this rainbow of temporality, I show how the building blocks of music that traditionally have remained tangential to music analysis, such as noise, intensity, flux, and the physical relationship between performers and listeners, how all of these participate in the creation of new forms of musical time by inviting listeners to actively interact with music in different ways. In essence, I encourage readers to imagine musical time differently, to imagine it by moving, clapping, tapping, dancing, and even headbanging. Thank you. Next, we hear from Professor George E. Lewis, the Edwin H. Case Professor of American Music at Columbia University, where he serves as Area Chair in Composition and Faculty in Historical Musicology. Professor Lewis is a trombonist, composer, and installation artist known for his innovative work in electronic and computer music. In these comments, Professor Lewis discusses an excerpt from the Dutch composer Louis Andriessen's Du Tide, its relationship to blues music, and how both exemplify Marius Kozak's ideas about musical time. At the end, we'll hear some discussion between Professors Kozak and Lewis. Well, Marius, quite a book you put together here. And part of the most interesting part of the book for me was um, your critique and analysis and critique of Robert Abington's uh, engagement with Louis Andriessen's 1980 work, The Tide for Time, which is one of my favorite works. And it's often said to evoke timelessness. Essentially, we've talked about Andriessen from time to time, and it's great to see your considered reflections on this in this book. Um, now, Adlington, you, I'm going to start you out with Adlington, points out that many of the repeated mass sonorities in the work, which you're going to hear a little bit out in a second, <laughs> consist of two superimposed dominant seventh chords with roots a perfect fifth apart. Now, for Adlington, these chords, and Andreessen calls them terrifying blue columns. Terrifying blue columns, you'll hear them symbolize timelessness through both their pitch structure and incredibly slow tempo. The chords themselves are said to, quote, inhibit forward momentum or the directional flow of time because the intended resolution of the dominant seventh is already built into them. And so here's an example. It might be a bit loud at first, but then it'll, it'll calm down.
55 minutes later, you're at the end of it. Or maybe not. <laughs> so I have to admit that I was sort of rushed in reading. I went to the original article by Adlington. I was a little rushed. And Louis, who I've known for a while, I, I thought he had said terrifying blues columns. <laughs> now, <laughs> I realized my mistake, but actually it probably wasn't a mistake because this is because, for, first of all, in blues harmony, the dominant seventh isn't a teleological way station, but it's already considered to be tonically resolved. And Louis, whose love and deep knowledge of the blues pervades his work, and I think we'd even hear that in this piece, has, and he's engaged with these harmonies in a lot of later works, such as the opera de Materia, or Matter, what I'm calling, now calling blues columns underpinned both the first movement, matter, which an overtly violent series of percussively dominated choral accents, which last through the whole 25 minutes of the piece, you could hear that as terrifying blues columns that present, in Andreessen's word, a musical metaphor for the eruption of intellectual and also physical violence. Now, I heard these columns, which are said to deliver 16th century shipbuilding instructions, not so much as the hammering together of a ship, but as a sublimated depiction of the appalling violence and objectification of human beings that attended not just the building of European nations, but even in a staggering moral contradiction, the emergence of the Enlightenment itself. But, and there's a little more to this, that when the second movement, the Hadabish Arya, which I've described as a plea to God for redemption after the horrors of slavery, and when you hear these chords, you hear the Arya, it could have been sung by Mahalia Jackson. And this is not to mention the fractal boogie-woogie in the third movement to style, which brings together Mondrian's love of jazz with Andreessen's own. One, one might also mention that Andreessen and Jason Moran, a couple years ago, if you'd been there, it would have been great, played a blues-inflected piano duo at the Park Avenue Armory a couple years ago, after, after Louis reflected at length on his long association with his fellow note-cracker, and I'll get to that in a minute, note-crackers, Misha Mengelberg, who was the pianist on the highly influential Eric Dolphy recording, Last Date, from 1964. Now, just for a little bit more on this background, I should also say that, you know, I was in Miami and I heard last week that Reinbert DeLeu and one of the other Notenkrockers uh, passed away. And so Louis, Louis is the last remaining Notenkrocker, one of the five composers with Misha, Jan von Flam, and Peter Schott, who had invaded the concert cabal in 1968 to hold the Dutch music establishment to account for the support of Dutch new music, and in 1970, collectively composed an opera, Reconstruction, or Reconstruction on the Life of Che Guevara, and dedicated it to their teacher, Case von Baren. Now, Case von Baren was said to be an ardent, strict dodecaphonist after the fashion of, you know, Willem Piper. But Case, he would do, I never met him, he died in 1970, he would, you know, he might place a tango in the middle of his dodecaphony. And Misha often related, he thought that von Baren played stride piano, quote, better than Fats Waller. <laughs> now, even while the musical avant-garde has tended to distance itself from the blues, minimalist music such as this would not have existed without it, and the lack of interest on this point by virtually all the most important scholarly treatments notwithstanding. But in any event, in Gatesian terms, Case von Bonner, who died in 1970 and never got to hear Reconstruxi, was a dodecaphonist, as Henry Louis Gates would say, with a signal difference. So, just a little bit more on this. While in blues harmony, the dominant seventh is stable and tonality establishing, there is at the same time a lack of finality, and indeed the traditional blues lyric cited by Houston A. Baker's book on uh, 
on, on blues and the um, African-American literature, seems to support a reading of social stasis. No progress, no resolution. You know, standing at the crossroads, trying to flag a ride. Standing at the crossroads, trying to flag a ride. Ain't nobody seem to know me, everybody passed me by. So here, what did this bring up for me? Well, it brought up Nietzsche's classic thought experiment on the eternal recurrence in the gay science. For example, here's what it says here. What if some day or night a demon were to steal into your loneliest loneliness and to say to you, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once again and innumerable times again, and there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought inside, everything unspeakably small or great in your life must return to you, all in the same succession and sequence. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke this? Well, on one view, the demon's visit exemplifies one of European history's most terrifying myths, the fate of King Sisyphus, whom the gods punish by compelling him to push an enormous boulder uphill, only to see it roll down again a task he was doomed to repeat endlessly throughout eternity. In James Sneed's essay on repetition in black culture and against the grain reading of Hegel's severely negative view of African culture, Hegel's construction of the African is, quote, terrifyingly close to the cycles and rhythms of nature with no idea of history or progress, a direct mapping of the Sisyphean fate to this alien culture that, quote, overturns all European categories of logic. But Sneed's methodology also allows him to highlight Hegel's inadvertent identification of one of the African's great strengths. Quote, having no self-consciousness, he is immediate, i.e. always there in any given moment. Here we can see that being there, Sneed is talking, the African is also always already there, or perhaps always there before, whereas the European is headed there, or better, not yet there. Now with this in mind, we can turn to the affirmative side of the gift offered by Nietzsche's demon. Or, have you once experienced a tremendous moment where you would have answered the demon, well, you are a god, and I've never heard anything more divine. Now, but the sentence of Sisyphus, it sounds to me like the ultimate expression of hell. And quoting Professor Kozak, what detides musical experience, musical materials afford is, quote, not the experience of the conflict between time and eternity themselves, this is the major issue here between between time and eternity, timelessness, but instead the enactment of this anxiety as an aspect of lived time. And I hear that anxiety as Sisyphean. Certainly an imagined bodily experience, pushing that boulder up that hill over and over, a bodily experience of lived time where the lack of resolution of the dominant seventh in European common practice becomes a constraint-laden prison from which escape is impossible. But Andreessen and Detail offers what amounts to a critique of progress embedded in the music's assertion of a necessary absence of final resolution that really precisely aligns with blues lyricism. And given what Andreessen has already done, this doesn't surprise me at all. Although I'm grateful to Marius that I was able to figure out how to think of it in this way, thanks to his book. Um, even if Ludwig Wittgenstein uh, defined eternity in the Tractatus as timelessness rather than infinite temporal duration, God, I just came across some guy. There was a, a band with a name. What was the name? Uh, like infinite. Uh, it was in, whatever infinite temporation to temporal duration means in German. That was the name of the band. <laughs> I forgot what the name was. Anyway, my German is not that great. But anyway, we need to. We we don't have to adopt a passive rhetoric of timelessness in hearing this piece. Uh, for me, Detail 
enacts a Krausian anti-narrative, a temporal grid that's anti-developmental, or perhaps an infinite Husserlian now, and you simply live with it throughout the 45-minute duration of the work. In both the blues and in the tide, the lack of final resolution is accomplished through repetition. In the Andreessen, a series of chordal blue columns, or blues columns, passers-by become very like a series of pebbles dropped into a pool where one observes the resulting wave motion and resonance. By way of compensation, the work presents a constant stream of those terrifying blues columns, Gatesian repetition with a signal difference. Indeterminacy is the ground for whatever anxiety sets in. Because of the glacial tempo, one cannot really predict, or rather, one need not bother to predict where the music is going, if anywhere. So, thanks. As far as uh, George's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you turned the blue columns into blues columns. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I hear the, the, the tide very, the, through, through a lens of thick anxiety that, that I describe in the book. Uh, it's a very, I, by the time I get to the end of the piece, I feel like my blood pressure is just skyrocketing because I cannot, I cannot just let myself go and enjoy these pebbles that, that he's dropping into the river or I'm dropping into the river. It's like I, there's nothing for me to grasp onto. I can't remember what happened. I don't know what's going to happen. It's just, yeah, I just feel like that tense. Um, so yeah, so I'm. That's <laughs> real different. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, if I'm on a long plane flight, I know I got to relax and get some sleep. I just put it on. It goes on infinite repeat for eight hours. That's how I know it so well. <laughs> <laughs> or I think I know. <laughs> No, no. I, I, that's why when I saw the part about the anxiety, I thought, wow, where does that come from? And I tried to account for it through maybe the idea is you don't know what's coming, indeterminacy, you know, you don't really know. And you don't have really agency for addressing that. But, I don't know, that's, that's interesting. It, it could be, you know, our differences in our cultural backgrounds, upbringing, all that kind of thing. You know, you never know. All these things are related. But, yeah, but the anxiety, no, I never felt that. <laughs> well, I think that really speaks to the different ways in which, the, the different affordances that this music has for different listeners. Yeah. Well, just one other thing. Um, what I feel is that somebody is going to take this book and they're going to say, well, wow, maybe music can do all this. Uh, maybe there's other experiences we have that also do these things, and that we can use the insights uh, from this book to think about many experiences of enacting time uh, in a collective way. You say it you said it becomes enacted and emergent in our actions, time in our actions. You didn't say our musical actions. Rather than remaining a hegemonic construct, and then you get into the music part imposed by musical systems. You cut the music out. It still works. Mm -hmm. So that's the joy for me of this book, is that insights from music become valid for many other uh, social experiences, which is the point that Alfred Schutz, who I think is part of your book, uh, made in, in his essay of 1964, Making Music Together, where he's talking about a sharing of musical time. Mm -hmm. And you've gone you know, well past that, but it seems to me that if enacting time, 
I look at it as a, through your reading, I'm reading it as a kind of collective improvisation in which indeterminacy, agency, judgment, and choice become sort of crucial and everything gets co-constructed by the listener, the composer, the, the players, everyone involved. But in that's in just the music case. But in the case we're in now, we're not really doing music. We're still enacting time. And sometimes we have, we have differences where we think the time is going. And so given, and I want to sort of say that this is a very important book for, not just for music, but the point is that it's through music that we can understand other things about the world that your ideas definitely relate to and have something to say about. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Marius Kozak's book, Enacting Musical Time. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Gil Eyal's book, The Crisis of Expertise. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. <laughs>